Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with co-host Eric Trexler. Eric, happy, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Rachel, recording on a Friday. You sounded very professional I love it. there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And thank I have you. an apology to make to all of our listeners, but most importantly, you. I feel like on the uh, the Solar Winds podcast with uh, Sudakar, I monopolized the beginning of that conversation. I was listening to it again over the weekend while I was washing my car. And I was like, oh, I got to talk to Rachel about this. So nowhere better to do it than with all of our tens of thousands of friends Aww. and listeners. Uh, I apologize, but I, that was such a good podcast. I was so excited. It was And I was like, when does podcast, Rachel yes. speak? When does Rachel speak? And I just kept talking. So I'm sorry. I, I would have been fine with a soliloquy from Sadaker, oh. frankly. I mean, it's he was so fascinating to to listen to. But um, I have to say, though, I'm really excited to, though, I think this week's guest, Eric, has probably the coolest job of well, anybody. I mean, I, I, I'm going to leave that out there. And, I think and just take it away. Okay. I'm just going to sit here and make up for time with Sadaker. So have a nice show. <laughs> <laughs> Great, we'll talk to you later. Uh, so this week, let's welcome Dr. Andrew Hammond. He's a historian and cur curator at the International Spy Museum in D.C., and he leads the museum's must-listen-to podcast called SpyCast. He's also the author of a forthcoming book called Struggles for Freedom, Afghanistan, and U.S. Foreign Policy Since 1979. Um, and I think, buckle up, folks, this is going to be a really great conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you both. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to kick it off since Eric has taken himself uh, off the map temporarily. But before we got on, we were talking about kind of how you got on this path. And I'm sure everybody asks you, I mean, how does, how does one, you know, make their way to, to be, you know, curator and historian, historian at the International Spy Museum? Um, and, and I love your origin story. Would you mind kind of sharing that with our listeners? Sure. Yeah, it's been, it's been quite the journey to get here. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess part of my story can be traced back to 9-11. Uh, and 9-11, I was in a uh, military intelligence section. I was in a dark room. Uh, someone said, uh, the, you know, you have to see what's happening on TV. And I have to be honest, I was, I was quite grumpy. I was like, here we go. It's going to be like, you know, Jerry Springer or something sure. like that. Cat well, on a Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. You get yeah, Jerry exactly. Springer in the UK? <laughs> no, this was Germany, actually. Jeremy Spr Jerry Springer was in Germany? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, see, yeah, we had, we had, we had a TV where we had the news going, uh, running constantly. So I went through and the North Tower had been struck and we were sitting watching the TV and the, and then the South Tower was struck. And, you know, my 9-11 story is, you know, a, an insignificant part. I guess it's more the effect that it had on the rest of my career yes. and, and then what I've done. So I, I basically felt like an actor in a play, but uh, no one had bothered to tell me the plot. So, <laughs> so uh, I decided that I was going to try to figure out what the plot was. And not that that's a question that you ever finally answer, but right. um, yeah, I feel like I'm getting a better understanding of it all. 
And that, and that basically led to the journey that took me to the spy museum. And ever since then, unbeknownst to me, I was developing my CV that made me just the perfect person, I think, for the, for the historian and curator job at spy. So, uh, in the military, uh, mm. some work in intelligence. And then I went back to school, done uh, a PhD, done some postdocs. Wow. I was at the 9-11 museum. Uh, I was at a museum back home in Glasgow. Uh, and then I was here, I was in academia for a bit. And then I was at the Library of Congress when this job wow. came up and uh, I threw my hat in the ring and for better or for worse, <laughs> they've got me uh, and I'm not going anywhere. Rachel, it's in our backyard <laughs> in DC here. And, and I would say, I mean, yes. Andrew, what would you say? A five hour tour? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is sure. a must yeah. see. I mean, even more. In a sea mm. of museums in, in Washington, D.C. You do have to pay for this one, right. but it is worth every single dollar in the new location. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Um, but it is a must-see if you come to, I, I would imagine TripAdvisor has it as a, a five-star or whatever. You know, you've got to go. Yeah. And, and, and just, you know, on that and on my job, I mean, we... <laughs> Like this is in the Guinness uh, records book. You don't have to believe me. We've got the world's biggest collection of intelligence and espionage related artifacts. So, so that it's almost 10,000. It's a very rich collection and it goes wow. across, across the world and it goes back through time. So yeah, we've got some real doozies. We've got some great stories. Um, and what's, yeah, what's the absolute coolest thing that's not on display? Ooh. Oh, okay. Ooh, that's a tough one. Yes. That can that can depend on the week. Uh, <laughs> uh, that can depend on the week. At the minute, my favorite artifact that's not on display is probably a sword that I have been doing some research on uh, this week, actually. And it's from the Civil War, and it was captured from uh, one cousin from his cousin, and they were both fighting on opposite sides in the civil okay. war. And then one of the, the, one of the cousins, the one that lost the sword, he went on to uh, be in charge of the trial of two Confederate spies wow. who were executed. So, so one of the things that I love about the artifacts is that it, it's almost like a window. It's like a portal into a bigger story. So I just lost myself in the research. I was looking at all of these old cool documents um, you know, and then you start building the story out, but but it's it's just trippy to think that if you shut your eyes, you know, and do a little thought experiment, you know, like Proust Madeleine, mm -hmm. and you just imagine yourself going back to when the sword uh, was wow. used in anger, and then you're there, you're back there, you're trying to live your, you're trying to see the world through the eyes of the people that use the artifact or that were involved with the artifact. So that's my favorite one that's not on display at the moment. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it changes by the week. Awesome. Rachel, have you ever been to this spy museum? <laughs> I have not. Okay. I haven't. Next I have time, not. I, next time you're in DC, yeah. I think my favorite on display is the, uh, the, uh, the East German car. Like, you know, the, the way people tried to get out of East Germany when the wall went up or before, maybe before yes. the wall went up, but they would, I guess it was when the wall was up and they would, the way they would contort themselves and shove themselves into a car, like behind the dashboard, Rachel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Cause those cars were kind of small. Oh, oh yeah. So they I were all imagine, Russian, yeah. East German. Oh yeah. They were tight. And like, 
a diminutive <laughs> person. I don't think I would fit myself, but yeah. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, one of, one of the great things about this stuff is, and yeah, Rachel, anytime you want to come, let me know and I'll get you comp tickets. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I love about this is that you can, you, it's such a rich topic. You can explore anything like international relations is mm-hmm. central to espionage and intelligence. Yes. The humanities, you can look at literature, you can look at movies, you can look at popular culture. STEM, my goodness, espionage and intelligence has got yeah. STEM up the wazoo. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Cryptology, uh, you know, mathematics, uh, engineering great. solutions, technological solutions from oh. spy satellites That's to drones. So, so it's just such a rich kind of thing that you can dig into in so many different so ways. So do you get a Absolutely. lot of school tours? We do, yeah. We've got a okay. fantastic youth education team that mm-hmm. that yeah work with schools and do tours, do virtual events, and so. Yeah, forth. as we look at STEM education, I would think that would be. I mean, yeah. I I can think of no cooler place to go. And, right. and the museum isn't around anymore, which was also really cool in the city. Yeah, that um, was really fortunate. Cool. It's such a shame that that's went. gone, Rachel. I know that's yeah. your background, but uh, but. Uh, I can yeah. think of no cooler place to go than the International Spy Museum for technology and, and just fun, cool stuff, facts. Yeah, um, <laughs> I completely agree. And uh, another way that it's so rich is that it's there's something there for everyone. Like, yes. you know, mum and dad like it, the kids like it too, or you go with the in-laws because you don't really want to talk to them and then, <laughs> you know, they go away and lose themselves and then you meet afterwards and you share some <laughs> stories and you pretend that you're getting yes. along, you know, so you can, there's really, yes. there's really, there's really, exactly. something, there's really <laughs> something there for everyone. I can tell you, you know? and Rachel, we'll probably get banned for this, but the scrotum concealment from the 60s or 70s from the CIA is the one my 14-year-old loves the most. That just gets him going, so... <laughs> mid-teenage boy like you know that's the coolest thing ever truly something for everyone eric yes indeed (laughs) and and there's also we also have on that vein we have like a a rectal uh toolkit that you you know store in a you know particularly safe space Uh, (laughs) so there's yeah so there's just like (laughs) there's just so much and, and and one of the cool things about that, you know, more seriously, like thinking about them like scrotal or rectal, like mm-hmm. all of these like things, all of these artifacts, a lot of them are a solution to a problem. Exactly. Or a lot of them are a technological or solution or it's a tool that's used to help people convey information secretly or steal information or, mm-hmm. you know, all those sorts of things. So So there's so much like ingenuity and inventiveness yes. that goes into it so just think about alan turing the imitation game think about how much creativity was involved in trying to break the enigma machine with 157 million 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 right. possible permutations i mean that's, that's some insane. serious like ingenuity and problem solving so so the history of espionage intelligence yeah. is just filled with this and it's it's just so fascinating and these are me. all antiques rachel What's they're going the, by the wayside with cyber right with it you just well exactly. just reach into somebody's business and pull their uh, data out or you, you know, we don't need this anymore so, so, well, so, some of them are yeah you know, sorry. yeah no go ahead andrew i was gonna say but you know i think sometimes you know everything old is new again as well 
uh, you know, so I wouldn't count them out necessarily. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think that the, the, the landscape of intelligence and espionage has definitely been profoundly affected by cyber. You know, there's just all kinds of changes coming over the horizon. Absolutely. And then even when we get into, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, the metaverse or you know, whatever the heck Facebook are calling right. themselves these days. Um, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's all, all of these things that are coming over the horizon, but right. I guess part of it is just looking at what is still applicable and what has changed. So I was speaking to someone the other day about this and they were saying, it doesn't matter what technology comes along. If you can have someone in the room when decisions are getting made that can then pass those in, that information on to you, Right. And that, that, that's always going to be a factor. So there's certain things that I think are evergreen and perennial and there's some right. things that are going to change. But, but even like if you think about it, like with cyber, like we've got a, an exhibit called Cyber, the new battlefield. Mm -hmm. So this is a new area, a new, a new site for intelligence and espionage. But that didn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't come right. out of a vacuum. So the history of cyber, I mean, you can trace that back through cryptography, for example. Mm -hmm. You can go back to pen and paper, pe uh, pencil and paper cryptography, yes. electromechanical cryptography, uh, analog computing up to digital, uh, onto quantum. So mm -hmm. you can pull that aspect out. You can think about it in terms of securing data and communications. Um, that's what a lot of intelligence is about because it's all very well stealing information, right. but if you can't get it securely to someone else, then right. you know what's the what's the point? So, so there so there's all of that. But in this gallery as well, we do have artifacts that tie mm -hmm. into cyber. So the, the Jester's laptop, Moonlight mm -hmm. Maze, yes. uh, the a, a shard from the Aurora generator test in 2007, which proved that uh, a cyber attack could affect the, the physical world. So, mm. so there's always going to be that as well. But if you think about it, even in the history of intelligence, like a lot of these tools are still there to capture something intangible. Right. So, so, so you can have something that's going to transmit a radio wave. I mean, human beings can't see radio waves. Right. There's a tool and then something happens in the ether and then it goes back to another tool. Same thing with cyber. Right. Unless we get to the point where I can just transmit information inside my head uh, to yes. someone else, there's always going to be a tool that gets used mm -hmm. to do that. So those tools are, are some of the things that we are thinking about in terms of what we're going to collect to tell the stories of the future. I think that's a great point, right? Mm. For people who are in yeah. the cybersecurity business, understanding the motives, the way the adversary thinks, what they're trying to get yes. to, the why, as I call it. And then really finding, like like looking at these examples, which are so cool, the tangible ones, and, and remembering, okay, this is how the adversary did it 50, 60 years ago. How are they doing it today? You can translate that into your job. And I think you can be much more effective. I, I think yes. everybody should have to have a man mandatory professional development day in the business to go there and understand from a nation state perspective, mm -hmm. or even industrial yes. espionage between companies in some cases, 
what the adversary thinks about, how they think about it, to what extent shoving somebody into a dashboard or or uh, the great seal and some of the cool exhibits you have, they'll do that in, in, on the IT side too. I got to right. take you there, Rachel. I'm, I want to go. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to get back on a plane again. So let's do this. Let's do this. I mean, I mean, just thinking about your podcast, I mean, there's just so, there's just such rich connections. It's just so fascinating. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about and the, and the research for speaking to you guys, you know, looking at the episode, uh, you know, he who tries to defend everything equally defends nothing. But yes. I think that, you know, I'm just thinking about this counterintuitively. You can flip that on its head because with, for example, say zero days, uh, yep. he who doesn't defend everything <laughs> equally defends nothing because <laughs> if you've got Buckingham Palace but there's still one of the windows that's not closed properly an intruder managed to stumble upon that and get their way into the Queen's bedroom as, then you're going to lose your happens, job yes <laughs> <laughs> and that and that really happened yes so, I so, so that. you know there's interesting things that you can think about I'm not saying that that perspective is wrong I'm just saying that there's so many like rich ways yes. that you can like compare what you guys are doing with what we're doing. Absolutely. I think, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're a modern historian, so, you know, you, you know this better than anyone, but I always, um, it's always fascinating to find out, you know, I, I think people get caught up, you know, the kind of the threats today, or, you know, they feel so new, but they're actually not new. I mean, these are tried and true techniques, you know, from, from many, many years back in history, um, you're kind of dusting off and maybe sprinkling a little bit of a, a, a different, you know, color on the back end, but it's, this stuff has been happening for a really long time. Yeah. The, 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 you know, this game has been going on since, <laughs> since time immemorial, since even like if you've ever read the Lord of the Flies or something yes. like that, you know, what are the other group up to? What are they doing? You know, how can we find out what they're doing? Yes. What are they thinking about? What's their plans? You know, it's just like a very, it's just like a very, almost an instinctual thing that's built into human beings. We want to know what other people are doing because what they do affects us. Well, right? And to gain advantage. Right. Uh, so like we always right. want, to, to yeah, gain I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's societal. Yeah. And so, so, so thinking about that, I was just thinking about again, just to go back to the enigma. So the Germans in 1942 add a fourth rotor to the Enigma. So that doesn't seem like a big thing, right? Okay, they add another rotor. But another level, that rotor, because of that extra rotor, there are men and women at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean right, right now. There's hundreds wow. of tons of material and ships at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean because of that rotor so we're talking about consequential stuff here we're you know yes. we're, not, we're not talking like this stuff doesn't matter um so i think i think it's just it's just really really interesting just to think about how this shapes the world around well, and from us. the german side Absolutely. they probably saved a lot of lives as a result although maybe you could argue it extended the war which caused more damage and, and ended more lives. But, but, you know, when they were looking at it, I mean, everything has downstream consequences, good and bad. And, and that's why it's, it's a long, it's a long day at the international spy museum. Cause it's just so cool. 
It, it really is. And I mean, just to go back to Rachel's point, just one other thought that I had when you were talking there, like one of the things that's interesting to me as a historian, but as someone that's thinking about cyber and where we're going in the future, it's this stuff has been going on since time immemorial. But one of the things I think that has changed is the role of the individual. So think about the invention of the aircraft. Right. That meant that the front, the war was no war was no longer just about two front lines that opposed each other right. and slugged it out because aircraft can just fly over the top of that. So then civilians become caught up in total war. Uh, and I don't want to compare it to war, but if you think about right. cyber, like during say the Cold War or classic age of espionage, secrets were inside embassies, you know, mm -hmm. in a safe and you had to be read in or something like that. So the, so where the important information was or where the, where it was, was in a specific site. It was in a specific Well protected, locale. well defended. Yes. Well exactly. protected and well defended. Now the battle lines are much broader because every one of us has, almost every one of us has uh, an iPhone or a computer or we're going on the right. internet. So we're all like, yeah, yeah, we're on the front lines of, of the cyber struggle, I guess. Um, sure, there's places that have richer stores of information. You're going to get more information if you hack into NSA versus my computer, but right. still uh, the battle lines are much broader, I think, whereas before it just, it just used to be certain people and your average citizen could just be like, well, that's what the spies do over there and I go about yeah. my life here. But now, you know, do you, do you want your DNA um, information stolen? Do you want your personal information stolen? Do yes. you want your videos and photos and life history all out there. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I guess the game has changed quite a bit. Well, and if we're talking espionage, I mean, you, you had to, to get to the embassy or to get to the military base or facility, you had to put spies or agents in a geographic territory. You yes. can now do that from St. Petersburg or Beijing or wherever through keystrokes. And I think that accessibility um, along with, once that spy was there, they had to have a, what, a Minox camera, I guess, to, to take photos or they had to steal paper and, and somehow get it out through physical security. Today, you can bring massive volumes of data out digitally. So it's mm -hmm. easier accessibility. It's easier to extract the information. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think it really closes that gap of time between advantage to parity in some cases, which is a problem for us because we have a big advantage in the free world, the UK, the US, Canada, you know, the, the modern industrialized nations. And I, I think that that's such a great point, Eric. If you think, you know, if you think about, say, going back to that era, the cipher clerk, what a great person to recruit. Mm -hmm. You know, the person that may not be at the top of the food chain, but they are abreast of all of the information. Right. But even if, but even if you're a cipher clerk, there's only so much that you can photograph with your Minux camera or only so much that you can sneak out and try to sneak back in. But if you're a systems administrator, I mean, you can sit astride like gargantuan Everything. quantities of information. Right. 
yeah, everything potentially, and you can, you know, you can get all of that and put it on quite a small thing and take the whole lot out. So, right. you know, that volume has just shifted exponentially. So do we see, I mean, you know, as we go forward from a museum perspective, fewer buttonhole cameras, fewer dead drop examples with hollowed out bricks and you name it. Although we did just catch a couple of, uh, reportedly, I don't think they've been, they've been tried yet and, and, and uh, formally uh, convicted, but a couple of Navy, a, a Navy, a former Navy person and his wife who uh, met up with the FBI trying to sell information. Um, so it still happens. But I think, like, what is right. the, the the exhibit changes? You you talked about Jester's laptop. Um, mm-hmm. So cool, right? But but you're now looking at the laptop that was used almost in the same fashion as a hollowed out brick or a buttonhole camera. Right. As as the tool. Do you have, do you have just a hundred different laptops down the road? <laughs> yeah, that, that becomes the, the, the exhibit. Here's the of laptop the that was used for this breach. Yeah. This laptop was used for this. Oh, solar winds, here's a thousand of those. Oh, look, they're Dell. Oh, now they're Lenovo. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Uh, New MacBook yeah. Pro. Um, that, that was a great breach. It was. I, th- I think the, I mean, I think just putting the historian hat on, I think that every one of these is reflective of the particular age that they come from. So in our cryptography exhibit, for mm-hmm. example, there's lots of wheels, there's lots of uh, cylinders, yeah. there's lots of, uh, you know, a strap that you wrap around a staff to conceal an information. Um, but then when you move on to the electromechanical age, it's more, it's almost like a typewriter, but it's clunkier and heavier and metallic like the Enigma or the Lorenz yes. cipher. But then when you get to the modern age, the, 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 the tools are different and sure the, the space between technological development is, is shorter. So, you know, the electrical mechanical age didn't actually last for that long, but it lasted much longer than, for example, my first uh, laptop, which was about five kilos, and uh, you could have killed someone with it if you hit or them over dropped the it head. on their foot. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, or dropped yes. it on their foot, and that wasn't that long ago, really. So, so the, yeah. the change is exponentially uh, quicker, but you know the tools will change, and that's going to reflect the type of exhibits that we put on and the types of things that we collect. I keep wondering, though, and, you know, and Eric knows I, I sometimes advocate this, particularly for, you know, kind of securing critical infrastructure. I say let's unplug everything. Let's go back to the Stone Ages, though. Let's go back to those things you referenced before, you know, where it's physical information. Give me your cell and, phone you know, for a and, week, and then we'll have this conversation. <laughs> I might look kind of like really well rested if I gave you my cell phone for a week. That's all I do. I'm glued to it like, like an addict. But no, um, more, no more bags. No under more podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd have to have a conversation in person. Yeah, and you're in but Houston, I, I and I'm in Washington D.C. That becomes challenging. We we figure okay. it out. No we more airplane, Stone Age. Remember, <laughs> so we're not getting together. It's a long walk, Rachel. I don't know, but I, I do think, you know, it's it's kind of the, the sometimes, right, you get so far advanced that you start to think maybe we've gotten too advanced and maybe we do need to go back and think about, I need to unplug this stuff from the internet because there's no way I'm ever going to be able to secure it truly, right? I mean, just as a matter of common sense. So 
could we be working towards something like that? I mean, in, in the annals of history, I mean, have you seen these kind of boomerang moments where people revert back because we just made too much progress? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think off the top of my head, the first thing that comes to mind is the one-time pad. Okay. So a one-time pad, as far as I know, is the only thing that is unbreakable. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of a one-time pad, you get two pads that are exactly the same. Uh, both, it's only those two people that are on the same page. You pass the information over, um, and they can decode it. And as long as they, as long as it is genuinely a one-time pad, as long as they destroy that sheet and you destroy your sheet, then that is as, as far as I know. And uh, you know. My my specialism is broader than just cryptography, but as far as I know, that's the only thing that's unbreakable. So, so I guess with these things, you can go back to first principles. Well, what is it about the one-time pad that makes it so unique? And is there a way to replicate that, you know, in the digital realm? Or, you know, how does this tie into uh, encryption standards, you know, PGP, uh, quantum, all, all of these sorts of things that, you know, uh, that are really, really interesting. But I think that if you're looking back at first principles, I think it's always like a pretty decent place to go. Mm. And I think, you know, as a historian, like there, there, there is a sense that nothing comes back around again in the same way. Like right. the, the human world, the social systems are just constantly in flux. The, you know, you can't isolate the variables the way that you can in a in a experiment or in a lab. Right. So it's very difficult to recreate them. But you can you you can look back and if you're smart about it and you're nuanced, you can draw lessons. So mm-hmm. for example, for example, recently the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could go back to the Soviet Afghan war in the 1980s and say, okay, having a 1,500 mile border with a country on the other side that's arming some of the people that you're fighting against is a problem. That hasn't changed. Right. And that was the same for the post 9-11 war in Afghanistan. I'm just giving a very kind of right. off the cuff example, but mm-hmm. there's certain things that you can look back at the past and, and, right. and learn about where we're going. And you have to do that intelligently. But I think that it really helps if you know what's going on, because right. there were a lot of smart people in the past that thought a lot of smart things and we kind of quite often forget them. Yes. Well, that's one of the beauties of the museum (laughs) and looking at the exhibits. There's so many examples. So Andrew, I have a, I have a projection type question or prediction maybe. So my information has been stolen through OPM, that breach, right? So we, we know at least one foreign nation state has uh, pretty much my entire classified history of where I've traveled and my family members, all kinds of information. I'm going to assume my DNA has been stolen at this point through either lab tests or, or whatever, where the adversary has, has taken it. If you assume that for a lot of, um, of, uh, you know, direct action workers, we'll call it, what techniques and tools and tricks do they use in the future, knowing that facial recognition, knowing that fingerprints, knowing that biometric data, you know, DNA, you, you name it, are, are known by the countries that they want to do work in? 
what do you, what do you see coming? And, and I'm thinking about like the uh, the Emerson mask that you have on display, where the five second mask where you can put that on, but that's that's pretty quick and temporary when you're in country, right? I mean, you can do that, but if you get caught, you're done. Like, what do you what do you see as the next some of the cool stuff coming up? If if you have any uh, indications there, yeah, I think that's a really great question, and it's one that I think the intelligence community is struggling with. Yeah, I'm trying to help about, them out right now. Yeah, they're yeah exactly. Uh, listen, and um, <laughs> uh, Eric, R- Rachel, and Andrew will. Uh, get, school you um, <laughs> yeah uh, I, th- <laughs> I think I mean like just looking at it again as a historian like for every technological development there's a counter development so thinking about the enigma machine so that leads to the bomb you know the, the, the famous machine that you see in say the imitation game because sitting there with a pencil and paper is not going to get you in something with 157 million, million, million possible permutations. You need something that's going to be able to deal with that on a more industrial basis. So you get a challenge, you get a response. Human history is full of that. The cannonball comes along. Uh, castles are no longer particularly useful. There's always something that's coming along. So, so for facial recognition, for all of these things that are going to make human intelligence operations more difficult, there's going to be creative ways to deal with it. I don't know if there's been a, you know, like a dreadnought moment, like there's a moment where, okay, you know, just what came before is no longer tenable. It's no longer viable whatsoever. I don't think that that has came. I think it's just more challenging. And it's funny you mentioned the Emerson mask because the guy that made it, was actually in the museum not long ago and I was speaking to him, uh, the former chief of prosthetics for the CIA and he was quite a cool guy to speak to for a bit. But he was saying that, you know, this era, like my era of prosthetics, that's, that's out the window of, now it's done. Kind of winding down now. Yeah. That's, that's kind of over because, you know, yeah, technology is just making things more tricky. So, so there's going to be ways around it. There's going to be, things that you can do in terms of some of the things that that I could see them doing. I could see them uh, just relying more on new technology to try to do those covert communications. But, but part of it is the recruitment process, right? It's, you know, you can, it's all very well saying you can do everything like online, but it's kind of, I mean, you can recruit people online, but you know, if you speak to, so for example, we had a, a guest on our podcast not long ago and he said espionage, like human intelligence, it's about the human soul. You need to look in someone's eyes. You need to let them know that you've got them, that you've got, you're going to look after their interests. You're going to protect them as long as they give you the secrets. Um, you know, so there's, there's that kind of human emotional intelligence thing that it's just very difficult to get just doing stuff right. online. The question then becomes, how do you be that person across from them? So diplomatic covers, one of the, the classic ways to do it. So then it becomes a game of how do we disguise better who is and who isn't a diplomat or, you know, 
the types of ways that if you recruit someone, the types of ways that you will pass information. Maybe you're not going to do the, I'm going to do a three hour counter surveillance route and then meet someone in a park uh, and then do the same thing back again because at some unspecified point in the future, those kinds of, uh, the, the kinds of facial rep recognition technology or the omnipresence of surveillance footage is just going to mean that that can't take place. So then it has to move to another realm. But I can't see the face-to-face -face diplomatic angle going anywhere. That's always going to be there. And as long as that's there, there is an opportunity to, to, yeah, to get someone's soul and to make them steal secrets on behalf of, say, the United States or the United Kingdom. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, somehow Tinder and online dating have worked it out, but but uh, I, I agree. Yeah. Gaining that trust in person is, is so valuable. You can't do it online. And like, you, like, but now, yeah. many would argue with digital espionage, you don't need to. All you need is an open door to the palace and you can reach in and extract everything you need and no relationship required. To that's some extent. true, but yeah, that's true. To, that's true. I think that just to go back to the human soul, what are the things that that you can't pick up from words or from a document or right. from a photograph? Intentions. Context. You, know, you can write down what your intentions are, context, um, those sorts of things are being able to ask. You know, it's all very well taking the data, but sometimes we need to ask questions of the data, right? It's not as simple as the data just gives up all of its secrets. Uh, you know, we, we might need someone else to bounce questions off of so that we can get more out of the data, those sorts of things. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I, I, I definitely agree with that. But I, I also think the new cyber defenders, the, you know, the personnel we have, we've been very good at protecting the physical world, locking doors and windows, walls, guards, cameras, you name it. We need to translate some of that capability into the digital world at a, fa a much faster pace. Right to protect our nation secrets, where whatever nation we we live in. Uh, absolutely, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, and you know, my my wife's American. Uh, we're going to have a baby in January. Uh, my daughter's going to be an American. So it's a, you know, e even when I when that wasn't the case, you know, it was. I was still strongly in favor of being allied with the United States, but especially now <laughs> I've got skin in the game. My daughter is going to be brought up here. So it's in my best interest for America to be strong and free and for it to continue to be like that. So to me, you know, I don't, I, I, I personally don't know why there's not more of a fire under certain people's asses to get this done because this is just, you know, this just needs to be done rapidly because so much information is getting exfiltrated. Uh, certain people are taking certain other people, uh, taking their lunch. And I think it needs to stop. Right. Well, and, and you see, you That's see the motive and you see the, you see the techniques in the museum, right? So we know people are going to continue to evolve and, and, and invent. It's a crazy world. It's a dangerous world, Rachel. really is oh man rachel we can't hear you you're <laughs> muted for some reason 
I thought you went back to the Stone Age there. I will see. I was trying to see what it would be like if I did that, but um, yeah. I but but here's the thing: you have these things like quantum computing coming up, and and what it's like this fear looming of of this threat. You know, what does it mean, and and who's going to get there first? And you know, I mean, that's kind of stressful. There's a lot of unknowns there. You know, that that we're still needing to navigate through, in addition to trying to figure out how to lock all the digital doors. Um, and that's just going to blow the doors off the hinges. So then what do we do? <laughs> so. I think that that's a really good point. I think that just to go back to what I was saying earlier, I think that there is always a fear that another side is going to have that dreadnought moment where you're the person that realizes that shucks, everything that I've got has kind of been rendered obsolete or relatively obsolete because of what they what right. they've what done they over there. Out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then it becomes, well, how long does it take to close the gap? So if right. we think about the atomic bomb, so 1945, Hirosh- Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 1949, the Soviets get the bomb, partly because they've got people in places like Los Alamos and, uh, you know, Oak Ridge and uh, other places. So that's four, four years. years. But it took um, them time to, after they took the material to read it, understand, trial, test, produce. So it was four years from from when the Americans made the, uh, you know, dropped the first bomb to the Russians having capability, but they they were working on it for that time. So, I mean, not a lot of time at all. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a lot of time at all. And during that, those four years, the United States didn't try to go to war with the Soviet Union uh, because, you know, it just, yeah, for a whole bunch of other reasons, we can right. go into another time. Um, but I guess the question becomes then, well, what if there is a dreadnought moment, say, in terms of cyber? What if you right. can completely incapacitate a nation? So say like the cyber attacks on Ukraine. Yep. Say you can just take it off the grid then it's completely defenseless, right? So then, then it becomes, well, what do you do? Is just making it defenseless enough or do you just, I want to take it out. So say, say, say the mutually assured instruction, destruction, like the, the logic of the Cold War is not there, right? Okay, America becomes incapacitated. Can we take America out before it gets back online? Right. And is that something we want to do? I mean... With nuclear weapons, that would be suicidal in a planetary right. um, context because the planet would be uninhabitable if you, you know, destroyed the United States with, with nuclear weapons. But, but nevertheless, the question is just what's the time period going to be to catch up with what the adversary's done and what is the adversary going to do in the meantime? So those are the two big questions, I think. And people are, of course, it is stressful, but... Is there going to be a dreadnought moment where we're really behind and we've got to step up and and get up to speed? Well, I think it's very quick. I mean, we I think many of us would would argue we're in low low intensity, low grade cyber conflict right now, right? As that gets worse, and Rachel, I just wrote about this somewhat in the predictions report. Didn't have enough didn't have enough uh, words room length word length to to finish it, but yeah, that'll increase to some kind of high intensity, high grade cyber. And then communication blackouts, isolation. And that's when it gets scary. 
Exactly. But we tolerate, to your point, Andrew, we tolerate right now the adversary nation states reaching into our, our organizations, whether they're government mm-hmm. or private sector, we, we tolerate that to some extent. Yeah. Where do you draw that line? What is that dreadnought moment as you talk about? And and how does that escalate? Very scary world at times. Yes. Absolutely. And I think I think one of the interesting things about what you're seeing, Eric, and what was spoke about earlier is that if you think about it, if the, if the, you know, so to go back to the embassy and the cipher clerk and the information being there and then the, the battle lines being extended and the information being on a much broader front. So jumping off from that, think about information and intelligence now. I mean, it's no longer the preserve of the government. It's no longer just about what the CIA or what the Pentagon do. Now it's about, well, what are they doing in Silicon Valley? What are they they doing in Seattle? What are they doing in the cyber corridor from Baltimore to Washington uh, through to Northern Virginia? You know, those all aren't all government agencies that's developing this stuff. So, so, Maybe in the industrial age, it was like, okay, we need to protect the blueprints for, um, you know, a particular aircraft or something. But now this, a lot of the expertise is not necessarily within the government. The right. expertise is, it's, is it's distributed everywhere. more broadly yeah, as and, well. And, and, yeah, and exactly. I look at that often as I think about the world and what's going to happen. And you look at something like China's GDP. And until about 2005, it it was relatively, you you see an uptick starting in the mid, early 90s. But in 2005, Mm -hmm. which almost parallels the uptick of digitization of economies and everything else, there is no way in the last 15 years China has come within, I don't know, three quarters, 75% of the United States of America's GDP without intellectual property theft, right? I mean, it is just a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive increase over a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, it's certainly a problem. I hope we do something about it at some point. It would be nice to, uh, to address that on the positive (laughs) side, they can only take enough as much as we have. So at some point they're going to have to do some more innovation on their own, but they're getting pretty good at that from everything I'm uh, hearing and being briefed on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think another one of the interesting things here is that for, you know, for a country like China, like think about what they're good at and what they're not good at and think about what the United States Mm -hmm. is good at. The United States is good at R&D, it's good at innovation, it's good at Mm -hmm. tech. And obviously we know that it's easier to steal that stuff than develop it yourself. Right. So, So one of the ways that I think about the new age as a, as a historian, as that if, you know, this is a little bit of a cliche, but if information is the new oil, right, right, that's the cliche. Mm-hmm. What the question that you don't hear much is, well, where is the new Saudi Arabia, the United States? That's, that's the, the, that's the location of the world's biggest store of, technological developments of R&D, of information. So 
you know, the Saudi Arabia is the Saudi Arabia for oil. America is the Saudi Arabia for information. So that means that just like Saudi Arabia attracted the great powers, it attracted like a lot of interest here in the United States, it's a site of struggle for that information and for that R&D. And you're right, it's been lifted on a gargantuan scale and we've got examples of it here at the Spy Museum and in some of our exhibits. No, that's a good point. Although I do think there is a lot of oil in other countries, Germany, the UK, France, China, Russia, Italy, you name it. And uh, it's oil's in the ground, you, you dig it up, but you have to have those natural resources. I think what we're seeing with information is you don't even have to have them, you can go steal them. And it's pretty easy. Right. Like you can, you can almost make, produce your own oil to some extent. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the unit of currency is different, of course, because oil is a physical thing and it's in the ground and information is more fluid. But I guess just my point was that not that those other countries don't have information or not that they couldn't steal all of the United right. States information, but, you know, because the United States, again, just to run with the analogy, you could say it's the Saudi Arabia of the oil age. It doesn't mean that there's not a Kuwait or an Iran or a right. Russia or a Norway. Um, but those stores of that currency, they're mm. more fixed in terms of oil, mm. right? right? Norway's oil is not something that Argentina can go and take out of the ground and right. then move okay. the oil over to, to, to the ocean. But right. the, with information, you're, you're absolutely right, Eric. Yeah, you can just take the whole lot. You know, mm -hmm. if you can, if you can get it, you can just lift it all. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you could be the Saudi Arabia, but you don't have to have done all of the drilling and all of exactly. the work. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up. That's a good analogy. I just want to uh, finish on the DB5 you have. As you enter the museum, there's some cool James Bond stuff there, Rachel. Nice. And it, is, it is a nice. mint DB5 from the film, I believe, oh. correct? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's, it's such a beautiful car. There's a great photo of Sean Connery just leaning on it. And I mean, that's just, that's just wow. such that's an, so I, cool. that's just such an, <laughs> an iconic moment from yeah. really from the whole history of cinema. Goldfinger, you know, many critics yes. think it's the best movie. Sean Connery, I mean, you know, I've, right. yeah. yeah, I mean, he, he I mean, he's, he is just so Bond, not Pierce you know, Brosnan or uh, Daniel Craig, the guy who just retired or who was the guy who did one Nobody episode compares to, to Sir Sean Connery okay. now. Oh, like Timothy I Dalton. There was like one movie that he did. You're out. George Rachel, Lazenby. Huh? George yeah. Lazenby. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Andrew, what I learned today is you're going to have a lot of exhibits and artifacts from, from, you know, going forward. You will have, you've been doing the podcast, your podcast, SpyCast for what, 15 years? Yeah, I've been doing it for 14 months, but it's been around for 15 so you've years. You've got another 15, you've you got another more than 15 years, I'm sure, Just based on started, the way things yeah. are going in the <laughs> Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Exactly. We are like the Harvard or the William and Mary of podcasts <laughs> <laughs> for intelligence and espionage. We're very old. Um, we're coming up yeah. on year four and I felt like we were old. We're like juveniles here. We're just learning the ropes. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, when, so when is your book coming out though, to kind of bring it back to the, to the opening here? My book's going to be out next year and it's, ba yeah, it's based on a lot, 
a, over a decade of research. Oh, wow. Um, over, well over a hundred interviews with, you know, people like former secretaries of state, national security advisors, wow. diplomats, senior CIA officers, those speechwriters, yeah, all, all kinds of people. So I'm really excited for it to come out. And also just between us, I'm really excited to just put it to bed and move on <laughs> to the next thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're recording this, time. so it's not yes. just between us, but I think we all understand where you're coming from. But aren't you working on a second book on 9-11? That's right, um, yes. Yeah, that's going to be based on oral history interviews oh, cool. with... Mm-hmm. Uh, intelligence officers and military veterans and wow. I'm thinking I'm going to try to release it as two parts so it's going to be like I don't know if you have came across any of Studs Terkel's work no um, oh. he was a reporter a Chicago yes. reporter he was a he was a kind of legendary Chicago journalist but he was a, a master of oral history and he was one of my inspirations and I think that like for the the post 9-11 wars I think it I think it's important that the voices of the people that our countries ask to go and fight these wars. I think it's important that their voices are out there uh, and they don't all speak with one voice. There's this right. kind of assumption that there's a, you know, a, a single voice that, but the, I mean, just think about the United States. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the military is incredibly diverse. There's lots of different viewpoints. People have got different yeah. takes on things. There's people that think that, the Iraq war was just a completely terrible, stupid, uh, unethical idea. And there's right. other people that think that it was really the right thing to do at the right time. And, mm-hmm. and they will go down, uh, with the ship defending it to the dying day. So, so I want to try to dry, draw out the diversity of those different perspectives on the post 9-11 era amongst mm. intelligence veterans and military veterans. Ooh, that's going to be great. That's going to be really good. Now, when's that coming out? That's probably <laughs> going to be 2023. Wow. So that's not too far after the other one. No, because I've, I've kind of been, uh, the, the first one has been underway for a long time. The other one's been underway for maybe five years. So I have been doing okay. them both concurrently. Rachel, my wow. cybersecurity book, wow. it's a book on cybersecurity. It's probably coming to me out somewhere, somewhere around 2090. I'll get started one day. <laughs> Andrew, I don't have the patience. I can write a thousand words at a time. Uh, well, um, it's quantity, not qu- it's quality. Not I think quantity. Right. it's, well, it's uh, right. yeah, Maybe. <laughs> it takes a lot of focus and time. Um, you got to sit down and you, you really, really have to think. So. Yeah. Writing, is, uh, writing is challenging and, these and days. And have a good idea. Well, the yeah. ideas, yeah. right? I mean, really having an idea for me, it's that more execution. You, know, you would want to commit to for ten years too, right? I mean, that's yeah. you. You have to really care about it <laughs> to yeah, keep abs- with it. <laughs> absolutely, and in the meantime, life happens in the background, you know. Um, so that can be, you know, that can be challenging as well. Yeah. But yeah, I've never, I've never been one of those people that has a problem with ideas. It's just I need a few rep replicas of myself right. to like exactly. catch them all well, cloning is going yeah. to be in the museum at one point so hopefully in your lifetime <laughs> just a matter of time okay so doctor exactly you'll have the inside dr track. andrew hammett at the spy me- the international spy museum excuse me it is it is yes. one of my favorite places in all of washington dc which is a city i love couple books coming out spy cast podcast every that's every week i think right every yeah, week. wow yeah, yeah. rachel wow. What a great day. And, 
You're Isn't going to the museum with me. Next time in you're in town, yes. you're going to plan so an extra excited. day and we'll go to the museum. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can't wait. And just, just one final um, like thought before I go, and it's one that your listeners may, may find quite interesting, but a few weeks ago we had the uh, founder of the Microsoft Threat Intelligence uh, unit on SpyCast, and um, that's an episode that's, uh, wow. you know, the kind of intelligence landscape of the future. So wow. it's probably one that you're guess might be your listeners may be quite interested. And that was called, Absolutely. I think, October 5th, Cyber Attacks, Espionage, and Ransomware inside Microsoft's Threat Intelligence Center. Yep. Love it. We'll include That's a link it. to that in, in the notes because I think folks would absolutely love to listen to that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it's been great to speak to you both. Thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, it's We'll been see great. you down at the uh, yeah, Spy well, Museum you. soon. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Yeah, don't be scared when you see us. <laughs> <laughs> um, for our listeners, please be sure to smash that subscription button. And until next week, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 